1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing two authors of a wonderful book. Uh, The book is titled Asian Cajun Fusion Shrimp from the Bay to the Bayou from the University of Mississippi Press, just out in 2022. And its two authors are here with me today, Dr. Carl Brousseau and Dr. Don Davis, um, who have written a really insightful book about the history of the shrimp industry in Louisiana, which sounds really straightforward, um, but actually has a ton of complexity and all sorts of different interesting strands that come into to this story. So I'm really excited to welcome you, Carl and Don, to the podcast to tell us all about the book.
0: Well, thank you for having us, Moran. It's a, a real pleasure to be here.
1: Could we start off, please, with you each introducing yourselves and explaining why you decided to write this book together? Um, Carl, if you could start us off.
0: Okay, I'm a Cajun and a native of St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. I'm a retired former history professor at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And at the time of my retirement, I was director of two research centers, including the Center for Louisiana Studies. I was director of the University of Louisiana Press and managing editor of Louisiana History, the official state historical journal. Um, I'm presently Sea Grant Scholar at LSU in Baton Rouge. In addition, Don and I are co-editors of the America's Third Coast series at the University Press of Mississippi. Um, this book and monograph series focuses on the entire Gulf Coast from Brownsville, Texas, to Key West, Florida. Um, I first encountered Don at coastal studies events in, in lower Louisiana. He and I were the only attendees with a genuine interest in the human landscape, not the indigenous uh, and invasive flora and fauna or the regional hydrology. Uh, you know, critters get usually get all the attention, by the way, and the research dollars. Um, Shortly after one of these meetings, Don met me uh, to discuss the UL Press's interest in a book uh, focusing on the invisible communities inhabiting the coast. Uh, Since that time, Don and I have been collaborating on numerous projects. Um, This collaboration has gone on for about 20 years now. And Asian-Cajun Fusion is, I believe, our third book together. don't correct me if I'm wrong.
2: No, you're right on.
1: Wonderful. Sounds like an amazing partnership. Um, Dom, do you want to introduce yourself a bit?
2: Well, I am not a Cajun. I grew up on San Francisco Bay Area. My undergraduate degree is at California State University Hayward, now California State East Bay. I was invited to join the LSU faculty as a graduate student. I have a master's degree and PhD from LSU. LSU's Geography Anthropology Department at the time was considered one of the showcases in North North America. My interests are sometimes described as a bit eclectic. I am comfortable speaking about fluvial morphology and just as comfortable speaking about cultural anthropology or cultural geography. Like Carl, my interest is in humankind. Is In the past, we would say how l- men have changed the landscape, now has humankind changed the landscape. I come from a working class background. My father worked on dredging equipment in San Francisco Bay, and I wrote my master's, by PhD, on the development and growth of Louisiana multifaceted canal system. Be- because of my interest in people and because of Carl's interest in colonial history, as Carl explains it, we look through a telescope from different ends. He tends to think from the back to the front. I tend to think from the present to the back with considerable overlap. So we've stretched our knowledge base from colonial Louisiana to today. Uh, We collaborated early on because of the book that I was putting together called Washed Away and let the record show my name is on the cover, but Carl held my hand through the difficult minefields of publishing and my own naivete got in the way. And in an automobile conversation coming back from a meeting in Charleston, we decided that what we wanted to do is go beyond simply refereed journals. We get that refereed journals are ranked promotion, and we think it's very fine. But you are limited in page size in some cases, and certainly imagery. We thought what we'd like to do is expose the population to issues in which they can at least thumb through the images and learn. And that book was an award winner from that, largely because growing up along San Francisco Bay, I was aware of the Chinese influence in the shrimp industry. Teaching in South Louisiana, I had a gentleman who was very committed to taking me around and showing me these derelict platforms. Something I never forgot. When Carl and I began thinking of our third book, it occurred to us that, wait, there is a connection between Louisiana and California that nobody has made. We took the challenge of connecting. The Chinese from Guangzhou, Pearl River Delta, through San Francisco Bay to Louisiana, hence the name Asian-Cajun fusion shrimp from the Bay, San Francisco, to the Bayou.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for explaining um, sort of your personal academic trajectory, but also all the different strands that kind of make up um, how this book came together. I think that's really fascinating with any book, but it's particularly in this case. Um, And I will also say, that of the hundred-something books I've interviewed now, this is definitely the prettiest. Um, It is shockingly gorgeous, and the idea of learning by thumbing through images, um, as a reader, I found to be very much the case. So thank you for that as a reader. It was wonderful. Um, I am, however, a historian. So unfortunately, Don, I'm more in Carl's boat on this one, going from the past to the present. And I'm probably going to have us roughly follow that kind of trajectory in today's interview. So the place, therefore, to start is in Louisiana's early colonial history. And I'm wondering, Carl, if you can tell us why shrimp do not feature prominently in this time period. Well,
0: uh, That's probably the most shocking premise of the book for the South Louisiana population. Um, the, the French in the United States are notorious for their um, outright rejection of dishes in, in including maize or corn, um, that there's something comparable at work with the French bias against uh, shrimp in the 17th and 18th centuries. The residents of Western France at that time generally considered shrimp to be a drunkard's food. And compounding this negative stereotype was the widespread belief that these uh, crustaceans were harvested by mean, nasty, and brutish troglodytes uh, <laughs> inhabiting caves along the coast. The, uh, the French reluctance to eat saltwater shrimp, um, and, and you have to remember that Louisiana was probably the least important um, possession in the French empire at the time. And so there were huge gaps between shipments of supplies to the colony. So the colonists had to more or less fend for themselves from time to time. And the fact that they're not eating shrimp, I I think, speaks volumes. And it's roughly comparable to the refusal of modern coastal Louisianians to eat nutrias. It's an invasive species of 15-pound semi-aquatic rodents. Um, The meat... Nutrient meat has been promoted in recent years as a lean, high-protein substitute for such southern staples as um, beef, pork, and even catfish. So hence the the fact that they're missing from the documentary record.
1: Mm. I was quite surprised to learn that, to be honest. Um, But of course, that doesn't stick, and (laughs) that's why we're surprised. So when and why does shrimp become the popular part of the diet that we think of today. Well, in
0: 1809, there was a huge influx of refugees from the servile insurrection in Saint Domingue, uh, present-day Haiti. Um, many of the well, the largest single group of refugees from the revolution made their way to Oriente Province, Cuba. And they remained there for several years until the Spanish government of Cuba kicked them out in response to Napoleon's invasion of Spain. And these refugees migrated almost to New Orleans, where they doubled the city's population in a six-month period. Um, These refugees arrived penniless, and those who had domestics hired them out as cooks. And it's these cooks who transformed New Orleans cooking, creating in the process what we now know as Creole cuisine. And that uh, Creole cuisine heavily utilized uh, shrimp. So that's really how it comes in, and it's sort of through the back door.
2: Mm. Yes, oh. but in yes, and, but in the same breath, we have to understand. That when shrimp was being popularized, largely because of drying and canning, which we'll discuss in a moment, all of these shrimp were being harvested by seine crews. And the seine crews were a polyglot of population. So when you were using a seine to get protein, inadvertently you would start eating that protein. So it not only was drunkard's food, but you could argue or at least make the case that it was poor man's food as well. Uh, You could use in many dishes. I I grew up in California. It is meatballs and spaghetti. In Louisiana, it's shrimp spaghetti. So this dish that, that evolved became commonplace among Uh, the habitants, the peasants of Louisiana. And they, of course, expanded and eventually, rather than being in the back of the menu and later the appetizer, they became showcased on New Orleans' world-renowned cuisine.
1: Mm, Quite a transformation from being completely shunned by people who didn't have that many other options. So thank you for explaining sort of that, stir- that surprise and how we get to what we might be more familiar with. Um, but I want to sort of continue the historical trajectory. So we're going to fast forward um, a bit from the early 1800s to really the middle of the 1800s. Um, and I wanted to ask about the, quote, persistent chaos of the years immediately after the American Civil War and what that really had to do with the shrimp industry being reborn. Um, Carl, could you maybe start us off on that one?
0: Well, there was a virulent anti-immigrant attitude, uh, biases in the coastal parishes in the late 1850s. Um, in fact, the, this area hosted the second largest vigilante movement in United States history in 1859. Um, the 1859 incidents um, were basically the, the apex of this uh, trajectory, and it becomes diverted, of course, in 1860 with the national uh, election uh, that would lead to the secession of the southern states from the Union and the start of the American Civil War. Louisiana, during the war, was invaded on at least three occasions, and uh, wartime devastation was widespread. In the wake of the war, Louisiana's economy imploded in, in some areas. Uh, property values declined by as much as 90% between 1860 and 1870. Um, the fact that there was uh, economic uh, distress uh, and the fact that there was widespread damage to the infrastructure caused the um, local population to turn inward and focus on the, the needs to restore life to some semblance of normalcy. And this op- provided an opening to the Chinese and to a lesser extent, the Filipino immigrants who were seeking to start a new life in what was then the vast Louisiana coastal marshes.
2: Yes, between 1850 and 1864, the Chinese arrived from Guangzhou province largely because of a rebellion that some scholars put at maybe 100 million people, and they were simply escaping this tyranny, if you will, and came to California at that time called um, Gold Mountain, and they were, they were here for one reason, and that was to get away from the problems associated in their own country. And as they brought with them what we might call their cultural baggage um, in California, like other Californ- uh, American counterparts, um, they did not make any money in the gold rush. They were not all involved in the Transcontinental Railroad. Many had other interests, and of course, the province that they came from in China is made up of the Pearl River Delta. As part of their cultural baggage, they brought with them the ability to dehydrate shrimp. Consequently, around San Francisco Bay, particularly on the Western side. By 1870, there were at least 30 shrimp drying communities. Think of them as company towns. They were dehydrating a tremendous amount of shrimp. Over 90% went back to China. They did dry fin fish as well, but they were involved in an industry where they were in competition with largely European fishermen, who simply did not like their success. And as a result, there was a great deal of xenophobia in the San Francisco Bay Area. The camps were um, managed very well. The population was making money. By 1883, however, they had migrated into Louisiana We're not exactly sure why, but they made their own villages uh, singular in these regions. And by 1882, the San Francisco press was carrying on xenophobic principles and that these Chinese were in essence running rampant in San Francisco. However, they continued to migrate into Louisiana, some fostered by the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which was in place for 61 years and limited the number of Chinese, to our knowledge, the only national legislative act to ban an entire ethnic minority to migrate into the United States. That... Momentum was fostered by the White Labour Party, by others, and it lasted from 1882
1: to 1943. Hmm. That's quite a long time. It is. And quite interesting to see um, already, right, the links between uh, San Francisco and Louisiana in this sense, and the kind of the knowledge that's brought and the um, kind of push and pull factors, I suppose, that brought um, the Chinese community to Louisiana. So really interesting implications for the industry.
2: Yes, and we have an 1886 publication from a community in Louisiana, Donaldsonville. And on the front page, there is a note saying, Chinese must go home. And on the second page, there is a note that a new Chinese laundry has opened up in the community. They were a bit conflicting.
1: A little bit, yeah. Yeah, maybe can't make up their minds fully there. Um, well, it's, sorry go ahead
2: it's an interesting thought
1: certainly well thank you for explaining kind of um, how the Chinese community got involved in shrimping in Louisiana and obviously um, had quite a significant impact on the industry um, but I want to touch. I want to ask about a point that um, you've raised already that also had a really big impact on the industry which is canning how did that change shrimping Carl maybe you want to start uh- one of the
0: things that limited the industry in its early days, and this is before shrimp drying really gained a foothold in the Louisiana marshes, um, you have to remember that without refrigeration in Louisiana's climate, um, particularly during the summer when the shrimp season is at its height, the uh, catch would probably be viable only for about five hours. This is based on information we've gleaned from biologists and people who actually have spent a lifetime fishing for shrimp. Um, So the geographical reach of the industry was quite limited. Um, The canning industry allowed the Louisiana fishery to extend its reach exponentially and by the 1880s 1890s um the industry begins in new orleans in the late 1860s uh, with the dunbar family's operation but by the 1880s it has a continental wide reach and it's beginning to ship products overseas and um that that revolutionizes the whole industry because um you suddenly are able to preserve uh, a very um a, a very um, a, a foodstuff that spoils extremely quickly um without refrigeration and refrigeration comes in at roughly the same time that canning gets started the ice allowed the fishermen to extend the geographical reach by going farther afield, bringing in larger quantities of shrimp, which in turn allowed the canning industry to thrive.
2: Yeah, and by way of a footnote, I think it's important for you to understand that the immigrants that came to Louisiana did not just come from the Pacific Rim. The largest Chinese community south of the United States is in Cuba about 120,000 people. There's always been trade with Cuba. In fact, if you go to Havana, many of the buildings are built with Louisiana Cyprus. So we had immigrants coming from the West and then immigrants coming from the South. And when Carl talks about the canning trades, I think it's important that you have to realize until approximately 1920, all of the shrimp that has got into the marketplace were Wu's same groups. And they were first take to sh- taken to shrimp drying facilities. And then, as Carl mentioned, ice became important. But it's ice that was manufactured. It didn't come from the Great Lakes cut into blocks. And New Orleans has the distinction of having the first large-scale Canning shrimp facility with a product patented in Louisiana and a large scale ice producing pe- facility that not only preserved shrimp, but always, always worked with the oyster industry as well. So, when we look at this, it's important to keep in mind that this canned product was being distributed with the railroads. We know that the canning business began with the development of um, canned products circa 1870. We have documentation that shrimp drying was patented in 1885, which give us a launch point for the Chinese involvement. But more importantly, this is a product that you have to convince people to consume. I mean, think for a moment, I do not know a great deal about the United Kingdom, but I can assure you that people living in Tupacare, New Mexico, Boise, Idaho, some parts of Utah, parts of Phoenix, never had seen a canned shrimp. And Miranda, if you sum through the book, you will see we have given you a map that clearly shows by 1913, this industry had touched every state in the union to where we could divide find digital newspapers. Now, ponder that for a moment. This is the 21st century. We're using a medium that reaches lots of people. How did you convince a person living on the upper peninsula of Michigan that this canned product had value? And the advertising and public information barrage was impressive. More importantly, how did a shrimp that was patented in the 1870s by 1878 get to Hawaii? There's no telephone. There's no telegraph. Carl and I pondered that until we realized that it was on consignment. So a person took the risk to give this product to groceries in Hawaii, and the industry was smart enough that they labeled their product with numerous titles. Shrimp is shrimp. But if you look at the the labels, you might ask, why a wide variety of labels? And the reason is you're selling this to groceries in the same community. So we have shrimp called Bayou something and shrimp called Barataria something. They're different labels. Therefore, if I discount one in my grocery, I'm not forcing the other grocery to discount. That's pretty far thinking back in the 1870s to 1913 period. And the two most important words in the delivery system was "giddy up and whoa." So you had this massive distribution, which is better than Kellogg's distribution of cornflakes, yet most people are unaware.
1: Thank you for explaining it to us so that we are not unaware. Um, because it is really quite something to think about. And I can just imagine how stumped you must have been going, hang on a second, Hawaii? What? Um, because it really is quite amazing. And the, I'm, the, I'm glad you mentioned um, the image in the book, the, the map showing the distribution, um, because it really makes it quite clear just how big an operation um, canning and ice, et cetera, and the railways um, made possible. And so the obvious kind of addition to that is, of course, refrigeration when you no longer have to worry about generating ice in quite the same way. Um, So could you maybe add that on as a change that impacted the industry?
2: Sure. Refrigeration is a modern term. Uh, Many of us, myself included, remember the term icebox. And so you had a block of ice. But to the fishermen, who do not have refrigeration on board their sailboats, they had to take a 500 block of ice and put it in the hold. That's H-O-L-D, sometimes mispronounced as H-O-L-E. Well, if that block of ice dropped, you would indeed have a hole. So once you put ice in the hold, now you could put your shrimp, but how did you get ice to the facility? And that was with ice boats. These were the lifeline to the small independent fishermen. They would, hand sane take it to a collection point. At the collection point, there would be a shuttle system. A boat would be on site and a boat would be at the shrimp shed. They would pass each other. The shrimp shed would bring ice. The fellow going to the shrimp shed would take shrimp. The fellow coming from the shrimp shed to the rendezvous point was also bringing supplies. So you had, in essence, a convoy making a general loop to guarantee you got shrimp into the hands of the processors. Now, refrigeration changed dramatically. Um, oh, because of the development by Clarence Birdseye, and eventually marriage with what became Kellogg, the ability to franchise freezers. Now, these were not vertical, horizontal. And that and it was not necessarily, I guess it was licensed. So grocery stores began to have ice. Shrimpers into the latter part of the 21st century had individual quick-frozen, now it was packaged, but early in its history, it was a chain of ice boats. The shrimpers carried pennants or flags on their boat that showed the allegiance to whatever shrimp shed, and the ice boats moved
0: accordingly. <laughs> if I can just append a footnote here, the, Im- the emergence of frozen f- uh, f- f- fresh frozen food Revolutionized the French, I mean the shrimp fishery in the post World War II era, and it uh, in the wake of World War II that there was for many households there was disposable income for the first time, and many housewives invested used some of that in the purchase of the newly available frozen TV dinners, and uh, these became a staple. The two most Popular uh, entries in that uh, lineup were fried chicken and breaded frozen shrimp. And the breaded frozen shrimp allowed the fish of the shrimp industry to market and make profitable uh, low-grade shrimp uh, stock that otherwise would not be would not generate an income for the shrimpers.
2: Yeah, think of uh, 90% breading, 10% shrimp. And it was highly successful. The Swanson Company went from nearly nothing to over 100,000 units. The, The time period from roughly 1913 to the beginning of World War II, you saw some dramatic changes in the shrimp business. In 1913, Henry Ford developed the assembly line. So suddenly Model A's and Model T's came on the market. In 1917, a device that came by way of England to New England was the shrimp trawl introduced in 1917. We began to see the, the arrival of marine engines. And we have to be very careful here with terms we use. We are all familiar with General Motors, Ford Motor Company, motoring, and motor courts, which became motels. But with the development of electrical motors, you suddenly can't use these as synonyms. But what happened is because Henry Ford developed the automobile, there were surplus engines, that time known as motors, that the local shrimp community retrofitted to power their boats. Now, these were hand-cranked. Many a person, and Carl and I have interviewed them, at least their descendants, and they they break a wrist. But they had to become mechanized. Then we began to find, largely out of New England and the Great Lakes, a, a matriculation of marine engines. So we went from... Sane sail to power quickly. We went to a shrimp trawl, and just before World War II, you're beginning to see that these fishermen are adapting to diesel motors. So what we have then at that time, engines, motors, all becoming one, and the industry is changing dramatically. Right, and in a
0: a short time frame too. Uh, The contemporary literature makes it pretty clear that all of this took place in about a 12 to 24 month time period.
1: That's very fast.
2: Oh yes, indeed.
1: Yeah, okay, that's a lot of change and very quickly, Um, Though incredibly clearly explained. So thank you. Thankfully, hopefully, for our listeners, um, all of that change will be easier to digest than I imagine it probably actually was when it happened. Um, But that's kind of the, in a lot of ways, the things that have improved, right, the things that make it easier um, to do this, or perhaps some of the more um, kind of progress narrative types of the industry. But the book also talks about some of the not so great parts, some of the more problematic parts, for example, labor conditions in canneries. So again, going back to Don, as you said, the humans really in a lot of this. So why were the labor conditions in canneries so appalling?
0: Well, in Louisiana, that's due in large part to the fact that there were no, essentially no child labor laws. Uh, The uh, agricultural industry uh, and all of the other processing industries basically put up roadblocks to prevent the passage of any child labor regulations until the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, even when these regulations were put in place, there was no real teeth to them, in large part because of inadequate regulatory enforcement mechanisms and understaffing. Uh, Before the American entry into World War II, Louisiana employed only two inspectors to patrol and enforce regulations in an area roughly the size of England's southern coast. So that should give you some idea why these abuses were allowed to exist. In the absence of effective regulations, the, the robber barons of the Seafood canning industry, it had a free hand in ruthless, ruthlessly exploiting destitute transient workers. Um, every season at the beginning of the uh, shrimp season, for example, they brought in literally boxcar loads of transients from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, the uh, upon arrival, the men were separated from their families and sent off into the field, usually to operate the boats or to work on the docks. And the canners had a free hand in dealing with the, um, the women, usually mothers, and their children in the picking sheds. Um, the... The fact that uh, prominent Louisiana politicians were heavily involved in the seafood industry, I'm, I'm sure it was purely coincidental, Moran. I'm sure.
1: Well, Anything it, it, you want to add to that one? Well,
2: child labor laws were in place, but during World War II, there was a concerted effort and successful to hire people as young as 14 because the male labor force in this country was either fighting in the Western part of the Pacific or in Europe and manpower was short and yet meat was being given to the military, but protein was paramount and it required children to help with that. So even during World War II, you still had some egregious behavior with those involved in the
0: picking of shrimp. And right. when we... And those, I'm sorry, Don. No, no, go. You have to understand that uh, there is ammonia inside the these crustaceans. And when you're peeling them barehanded, uh, you're inevitably going to have some of that ammonia affect uh, the hands and the fingers in particular. Uh, generally speaking, and the child laborers... Um, and some of them were as young as three years old, um, had to be removed from the picking lines after just a couple of days of uh, work, simply because their hands were in- incapable of, uh, of working um, on the line anymore. It was just a horrific situation. And you had small children managing uh, their siblings uh, some of whom were, uh, were toddlers or, or younger. It was just a horrific situation. Uh, some mothers worked 12 hour shifts or even longer uh, in conditions that would not be acceptable today. The, the sheds uh, had high, uh, had high uh, moisture issues uh, and many people contracted respiratory uh, illnesses as a result.
2: Yet the picking sheds had near nearly every, largely female and children, alum water to try to ease the pain from the prickly characteristics of peeling shrimp in mass. You were paid by the cup. You were given what were called shrimp nickels or tokens, script to some. And they were weighed and paid, and on a few occasions, you had to spend it in a company store. Uh, it was a tough way to make a living for immigrants who came by train from Baltimore to Louisiana and Mississippi.
0: Right. Now, this practice ended abruptly with the American entry into World War One, simply because most of these uh, immigrants were... Uh, Members are former citizens of the Austrian Empire, Austro Hungarian Empire, and as a result, they became um, uh, non military uh, enemy uh, <clears throat> and potential fifth colonists. So they were banned by legislation from being anywhere near the coast, the American coast. Uh, as a result, the local population, meaning in the rural parishes, uh, Cajuns primarily, were pressed into service filling those, um, those voids.
2: Yeah, there was always a need for labor. And that labor was local. Um, most of the shrimp sheds and picking sheds had a whistle. When the whistle went off, the local people went to work. And Carl's quite correct. This is the first time people made money. It was a largely barter, barter economy. In fact, we've talked to people that didn't get a telephone until after World War II, didn't get electricity until after World War II. So we were at the end of the road communities and they were glad to work. They're all hardworking people, but it was truly um, blood on your hands. Mm
1: So I wonder if we can um, talk about a specific um, community within the worker population, which is, of course, the Vietnamese immigrants. Um, How did they sort of end up joining this community of all sorts of different people? And why did they have perhaps a particularly hard time integrating into this pool of labor?
0: Well, first of all, you have to remember that in 1975, when the boat people first started making their way to the United States that there was still a huge reservoir of anti-Vietnamese sentiment in the United States, largely as a result of America's military adventure in Southeast Asia. And so, when first of all, when they arrived here, and interviews with the, the members of that migration make it very clear that there was a tremendous amount of hostility from the the native population, the established population in coastal Louisiana. And Don, if you can discuss some of the other issues, the points of conflict, uh, regarding the Vietnamese entry into the the fishery.
2: Well, I think it's important that you understand that Vietnam was part of Indochina. It was a region where the population is Catholic. They are very fine with French cuisine. And Catholic social services, highly active in recruiting them into Louisiana and being a strong Catholic region. The acceptance was difficult, but not as hard as going to South Texas or Southern Alabama. There is a certain camaraderie. Uh, We interviewed a Chinese gentleman that stole a C 140 flew out of Vietnam, land in Thailand, and the only thing he said is, God, if you get me through this, I'm gonna help my people. When we interviewed him, he had simply underwritten, uh, I think it was 20 Vietnamese to become Catholic priests. And they had, much as Western migrants had, a can-do attitude. They're very insular, just like the Chinese. They have their own benevolent society. But the one common denominator is they knew how to fish, just like the Chinese. And they got involved in the industry. But the cultural backgrounds are much different. In South Louisiana, your boat is the best thing you own, and it is maintained perfectly. Because if you take a picture of it, that means it's not making money. And you always maintain your boats. The Vietnamese, on the other hand, did not necessarily follow that cultural tradition. And it was alarming to the locals. And yet through time, they've integrated into the community well. uh, Estimated that 20% of Louisiana fishermen are Vietnamese. And it's hard to find out exactly, but somewhere between 50 and 70% of the shrimp harvest comes from what are called slabs or the large steel-hulled shrimp vessels. But the link between South Louisiana and Louisiana is not a handshake, it's the Catholic religion.
1: Mm. Fascinating. Um, Not necessarily something that people would immediately think of, and yet, as soon as you explain it, it makes a lot of sense. So thank you for taking us through that.
2: Yeah, and I'd like to add a footnote, if I will, mm-hmm. back up just a moment. When you look at a shrimp boat, a vessel, it's full of shrimp. None of those vessels carried scales. So how do you know how to be paid? Well, what we found is the Chinese introduced what was called a chinee, C-H-I-N-E-E basket. And for Decades. This was the standard of measurement and then it was into barrels, 125 pounds, and then it went to uh, plastic baskets. In addition, the things that made a difference is not only the otter trawl, but you have to understand that the backbone of the business is a winch, an engine and a net. The rest is just humans sorting it out. And you need somebody to make the nets. So there was a whole business of net manufacturing, net shops. Nets were tarred because of the cotton. And then we've noticed the development of motors. Some of them became... Surplus during World War II, one is a 671, diesel 671, also Chrysler 671. And it became the workhorse. Gray Marine became the workhorse. But what about the vessels? Remember, we're talking first about sail vessels. Those morphed into engine power, one of which is known as a Biloxi or a Biloxian And that's the wheelhouse on the back. It was designed by Jacko Jack Kovacevich in Biloxi. And it was copied quickly by Louisiana's... Well, the captains were electricians, mechanics, boat builders, shipwrights. They were often built in people's front yard. With the discovery of jumbo shrimp, we had... Opportunistic Floridians by the name of Felice, no, wait, wait just a minute.
0: Yeah, Felice uh, Polino, Versag- Versaghi and uh, John Santos Carinas.
2: And they, they launched another type of vessel with the cab forward. And locals call that a Floridian or Florida. Well, so F for front, B for back. Both were wooden hulls. Steel hulls did not morph into the diet, diet di- discussion slightly before World War II. And the shrimpers did not believe in steel because of the acid from shrimp perhaps rotting the steel. But after World War II, World War II you get the big boats, the slabs, those that go offshore for maybe a month. Now, I want to put this in context. You look at a book like ours, you see one of these very large shrimp boats. The question is, how big are the fuel tanks? Carly, Carl and I have a colleague whose family's in the sh- shrimp business. She very kindly gave us the stack of papers to get Coast Guard approved. The combined fuel capacity is 50,000 gallons. Recently, a gallon of diesel was $5. So before you leave the dock, they have a debt of a quarter of a million dollars. I don't think many people understand the upfront money for these people to make money on a product that hasn't seen a great deal of change. And then of course, the single most important development perhaps was the development of the mechanic shrimp holder. And that changed the entire entire paradigm because you went away from hand labor to mechanical labor. Production went up and the shrimpers now had capabilities of working with large packing houses and expand their market wherever you could take a freezer load of shrimp.
1: Mm. Thank you for um, helping us understand the kind of more recent changes, um, particularly in sort of equipment and all sorts that have created a lot of opportunities, but of course also um, simply just in terms of fuel costs. And of course that's not the only cost um, that shrimpers also have to deal with, despite, you know, yay, it's great we have machines that can help us with this, but also... Um, there are some pretty big costs as well. So I was wondering if um, maybe bringing it up kind of fully to the present, you could tell us about perhaps one of the maybe one of the biggest problems, or perhaps one of the problems that's increasing the fastest, which is of course um, the impact of climate change. How has this impacted the Louisiana shrimping communities?
0: Well, Louisiana is clearly on the bleeding edge of global climate change. And that was clear as early as the the 1990s. Um, Land loss is probably the most readily apparent aspect of climate change in the Louisiana Gulf Coast area. Uh, Over the last 70 years or so, Louisiana has lost approximately 2,000 square miles of land mass. That's roughly the size of the state of Delaware and to put it into a better perspective for your listeners. Louisiana's land loss is roughly equivalent to the size of England's historic Norfolk County.
1: Uh,
0: Land loss has been particularly acute in the coastal parishes containing the estuaries that are the nurseries sustaining the region's major fisheries. Uh, Land loss also removes the marsh buffers that protect inland cities and fishing villages from hurricane tidal surges that now inflict severe damage on communities more than 20 miles from a hurricane's landfall. The increased damage means, first of all, the inevitable loss of some fishing families who can no longer endure the physical, financial and emotional toll of rebounding from ever more frequent hurricane landfalls. Um, There's also a much longer recovery period for those who choose to continue in the fishing industry. These longer recoveries are caused in no small part by the widespread damage to the local infrastructure, the roads, the electrical grid, the water systems, the processing facilities, the ice factories, residential areas, of course, schools and stores, and so forth. Um, And the fact is that the the storms are coming in with uh, increasing frequency. And in the past, Louisianians had usually a three or four year window to recover financially, emotionally and physically from the devastating effect of a storm. Now we're seeing numerous major hurricanes making landfall along the upper Gulf Coast. Uh, within a single season, and this is unprecedented.
2: And you have to be careful when we say land loss, unlike other parts of the world, land loss is a, a double whammy. We have subsidence coupled with sea level rise, coupled with hurricanes, and therefore We are always at the risk. We like to remind people we are sea-level citizens, and in the case of New Orleans, it's below sea-level citizens. These are very real issues. But when we've interviewed third- or fourth-generation shrimpers, the thought of another job is just not working. We've heard the term resilience, and the academics are trying to give it a A a meaning. We like to say that in South Louisiana, the people's resiliency is tattooed to their soul. The thought of moving is just not part of their DNA. They may have to move, but it's going to be kicking and screaming because this is the most important four-letter word in their life, home. And we've interviewed a man that wouldn't move five miles up to Bayou because it was too far. We've interviewed a, a a husband and wife team that probably had some marital issues before, but he wouldn't move to just up the road because it's too far. And if you don't live here, you cannot grasp the magnitude of this thought processes. When when we were almost done with this book we got hit with a hurricane so we are in the downhill run and we get hurricane making landfall in august of 2021 and then we know it In August 2021 was one storm, another storm hit in September of last year, and we've been given a two-week deadline to put together an epilogue. We succeeded, and as a result, this book is the first printed matter about hurricane influence on the communities of South Louisiana, including a number of interviews where A lady is trying to run her shrimp business days after the event. There's no electricity. Carl covered all that very well. She has to truck it into Biloxi because her shrimpers are going out. And the reason is they have to fill the shrimps, ice capacity, getting ready for Lent, which was a very big, important part of their uh, business.
0: Uh, one just to give you some perspective on the damage caused by that hurricane, and then the last big one was Hurricane Ida. Um, uh, roughly one and a half million people were without electrical service, and some of them were without electrical service for months. Um, the estimated cost, in terms of um, property damage alone, was somewhere between sixty-five and eighty billion dollars. At least that's the current total. It keeps escalating.
2: And when you have a shrimp boat that doesn't have insurance because you can't afford it, but that's how you make a living. They were navigating shrimp boats sunk in a bayou to get to the shrimp harvest sites because if they're not working, they're not making money, and they've got a house to rebuild.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both for sharing that with us. Um both kind of the sort of academic research side, but really also the human side um, and understanding um, as I guess, Dawn, as you said, right at the beginning, kind of the interest is in the humans here. And so thank you for sharing that with us, um, kind of bringing us all the way from the historical up to the present and giving us a glimpse of certainly some of the challenges um, of the future. So thank you very much for being with us to talk about the book. And as a reminder to listeners, it's titled Asian-Cajun Fusion, Shrimp from the Bay to the Bayou, out from University of Mississippi Press in 2022. Carl and Don, thank you so much for sharing your insights and wisdom with us on the podcast today.
0: Thank you so much for having us, Miranda.